Welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, for people of all faiths, and for people of no faith. We have been studying the epistle of James in the Christian scripture, and the section that I want to deal with this week has to do with the power of speech. The power of speech, a man can use his speech to condemn people, or he can use it to Praise the glory of God who created him. Words have the ability to heal and to give life. They also have the ability to hurt and to destroy. If you remember the nursery rhyme we used to chant to one another when we were children, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And it simply isn't true. Your parents could have spanked you as a child, and speaking for myself, you recover almost immediately. But if your parents are sarcastic or abuse you with unkind words, they can stay with you your whole life long. So the tongue is a tiny part of the body, but um, it can be used for the sake of God or for the sake of the kingdom of darkness. I remember sometime in the late 60s hearing a poem called Five Ways to Kill a Man. It was by one of those um, rock singers out of uh, Birmingham. I believe his name was Erwin Brock, I think. And I think he was part of a group called the Mersey Sound. And the poem starts off and it says, There are many, many cumbersome ways to kill a man. The first way to kill a man is to um, fly miles above your victim in a B-52 bomber and then drop your bombs on them and, you know, with napalm and you can fly home while the bodies of women and men and children uh, burn and then you can drink your Budweiser because when you said Budweiser, you said it all. And another cumbersome way to kill a man is to uh, stick a knife in his in his guts in some uh, back alley. Um, and th these are cumbersome ways to kill a man. Another way to kill a man is to um, blow gas at him. And for that you need miles of mud sliced through with trenches, uh, plagues of rats to eat the bodies, tin helmets, and land that nobody needs, needs for many, many years. And another way to kill a man would be to make him carry a plank of wood to the top of a hill and nail him to it. For that you need some Roman soldiers, a spear, some vinegar, a sponge, and a cock that crows. These are, as I said, cumbersome ways to kill a man. But an easier way, simple, direct, and much more neat, is to put him in the middle of the 20th century and leave him there. In other words, we can very often kill people by uh, the use of our speech. Now, when James is uh, talking about speech, he has an extraordinary passage about it in James chapter 3. And I'd like to read it to you now. I know this passage practically off by heart, but um, I'd just like to read it to you. 
Only a few of you, my brothers, should be teachers, bearing in mind that those of us who teach, like priests and pastors and parents and teachers, can expect a stricter judgment. After all, every one of us does something wrong over and over again. The only man who could reach perfection would be someone who never said anything wrong. He would be able to control every part of himself. Now he begins to here specifically address the issue of the human tongue. Once we put a bit into the horse's mouth to make it do what we want, we have the whole animal under our control. Or think of ships, no matter how big they are, even if a gale is driving them, the man at the helm can steer them anywhere he likes by controlling a tiny rudder. So is the tongue only a tiny part of the body, but it can proudly claim that it does great things. Think how small a flame can set fire to a huge forest. The tongue is a flame like that. Among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a whole wicked world in itself. It infects the whole body, catching fire itself from hell. It sets fire to the whole wheel of creation. Wild animals and birds, reptiles and fish, can all be tamed by man and often are. Like think of the taming of the killer whale at SeaWorld. But nobody can tame the tongue. It is a pest that will not keep still, full of deadly poison. We use it to bless the Lord and Father, but we also use it to curse men who are made in God's image the blessing and the curse coming out of the same mouth. My brothers, this must be wrong. Does any water supply give a flow of fresh water and salt water out of the same pipe? Can a fig tree give you olives, my brothers, or a vine give you figs? No more can seawater give you fresh water. Now, it's a, it's a powerful passage. He's saying the tongue is a whole evil universe unto itself. It catches fire from hell and sets fire to the whole wheel of creation. And it's true. Um, you notice how quick we are to spread bad news. In recent years, because of this particular passage here about the tongue, uh, I've asked God to give me the gift of a well-trained tongue. And I'm around people every day, and quite often... Uh, when I'm about to say something, I hear within me a little voice very often telling me to shut up. Uh, don't say anything. It's better left unsaid. And sometimes I hear it in the words shut up in different languages. Stadigit, the Italians would say. Firma la bouche. Esh the veil, they say in Gaelic. Gaia la bocca. Shut up. Because uh, we do set fire to the whole wheel of creation by the use of our speech. One time um, I heard of a rabbi who had written 11 volumes on sins of the tongue, and I was quite amazed about this story. And the writer who was talking about him said he went to see him, and he was expecting that the rabbi would be very... Uh, ponderous in his speech, very guarded, and to his surprise he found that the rabbi chatted easily from subject to subject to subject without ever offending anybody. And he asked him 
the secret of his gift. And he used uh, a Hebrew word. He called it the Shekinah. Apparently, the rabbi was so conscious that he was always in the presence of God every second of every day, whether one likes it or not, one is in the presence of God. And from an awareness of this presence, this man spoke. And so he never offended people. But it's the great teaching, isn't it, that the tongue uh, can be used to bless or it can be used to curse. And I'd encourage you to uh, watch the way that you use your tongue. It, it's amazing the power of it. Uh, let me give you an example. This is a, a story. A wise man was holding class for a group of young disciples when they begged him to reveal to them the sacred words by which the dead are restored to life. Why would, what would you do with a dangerous thing like that, the guru asked. I mean, think about it. Why would you want such a dangerous gift? You know, if, if I gave you the secret words to restore the dead to life. I mean, it's a dangerous gift. Can't you see that? Well, they said to the master, nothing. It would just serve to strengthen our faith, they replied. Well, premature knowledge is a dangerous thing, my children, the old man said. When is knowledge premature, they demanded when it gives power to someone who does not as yet have the wisdom that must go with its use. The disciples persisted, however, so the holy man, in spite of himself, whispered the sacred words into their ears, imploring them repeatedly to use it with the greatest discretion. Not long afterwards, the young men were walking along a desert place where they saw a heap of bleached bones. In a spirit of frivolity that generally accompanies a crowd, they decided to test the secret words which should only have been used after prolonged meditation. So no sooner had they uttered the secret words over the bones than the bones gained flesh and were transformed into ravenous wolves which chased them and tore them to shreds. So words have an amazing power to uh, give life or to destroy. There's an extraordinary vision in the prophet Ezekiel, and it's either uh, chapter 34 or chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel. And it's, it happens during a time that the Jewish people are exiles in Babylon. They're cut off from the temple, and everybody is depressed and sad and all kinds of things like that. Uh, in fact, one of the Psalms mentions it. It says, By the waters of Babylon we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, our tormentors said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And here they were, cut off from the temple, weary, disgusted with themselves in so many ways on the plains of Babylon. And then Ezekiel, the priest of God the Most High, um, has a vision. Now this actually, I found it since I've been talking about it. It's in chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And the hand of God was laid on Ezekiel 
And he carried him away by the Spirit of God and set him down in the middle of a valley, a valley full of bones. He made him walk up and down among them. Now imagine in your mind's eye yourself or anybody uh, walking through mountains and mountains and mountains of dried human bones, like huge skyscrapers. There were vast quantities of these bones on the ground the whole length of the valley, but they were quite dried up. Have you got the picture? Mountains and mountains and mountains of human bones and skeletons. And he said, God said to him, to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, Lord God, why are you asking me? You know, you know everything. So the Lord God said, prophesy over these bones. Say, dry bones, hear the word of God. The Lord God says this to these bones, I am now going to make the breath enter you and you will live. I shall put sinews on you. I shall make flesh grow on you. I shall cover you with skin and give you breath and you will live and you will learn that I am God. I prophesied as I had been ordered. And while I was prophesying, there was a noise, a sound of clattering, and the bones joined together. I looked and saw they were covered with sinews. Flesh was growing on them, and skin was covering them, but there was no breath in them. Now, if you look at the situation, actually, it's gotten worse, in a sense. The dry bones hear the word of the Lord, and as a result... Uh, flesh grows on them, sinews grows on them, skin grows on them, hair grows on them. But now we've got mountains and mountains and mountains of bodies, and if somebody doesn't do something pretty soon, there's going to be a ferocious smell. And in some strange way, I think that happens a lot in our churches, that uh, the priest or preacher preaches the word of God, and people hear it. But when they don't put it into practice, then, in fact, they are dead and they won't lie down. And in a way, it must be very, we must be very displeasing to God when we hear his message and refuse to put it into practice and then have the nerve to keep coming back to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday or Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, hearing the word but not putting it into practice. We're, we're dead. We're dead. We're... Um, were like trees that bear no fruit. So he said to me then, there was no spirit in them then, so he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the, uh, say to, to the breath, the Lord God says this, come from the four winds, breath, breathe on these dead, let them live. I prophesied as he had ordered me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life again, and stood up on their feet, a great and immense army. Now you'd say, who are this? Who are the dried bones? And the dried bones actually are, is the church, or the people of God, the Jews, and, and the, the Jews and the Christians both. We hear the word of God, but if we do not act on it, uh, if the Spirit doesn't come us come to us to help us to act on it, then we're just walking around dead. But we won't lie down. Now, touching again on the power of the word, I found an in another interesting story that highlights this. There was this group of tourists. They were stranded somewhere 
in the countryside and they were given all rations to eat. Before eating the food, they tested it by throwing some of it to a dog who seemed to enjoy it and suffered no after effects. The following day, they learned that the dog had died. Everyone was panic-stricken. Many began to vomit and complain of fever and dysentery. A doctor was called in to treat the victims for food poisoning. The doctor began by asking what had happened to the body of the dog. Inquiries were made. A neighbor said casually, Oh, it was thrown in a ditch because it got run over by a car. Human beings react not to reality, but to the ideas in their heads. So if we do not react to the word of God when we hear it week after week after week, then we are basically dead. May the Spirit of God come upon us and give us life. I remember as uh, a child, uh, oh, I must have been about six years old, and my mother pulled my jacket up around my neck to keep me warm as she was sending me out to do messages, and she said, you're a great little boy. So even to this day, the word of my mother uh, stays with me and gives me life. On the other hand, I am very still painfully aware of the times that a teacher dismissed me as an idiot and a fool and somebody else was unkind to me in their speech. In chapter 4 of James, he goes on to say, talking about the disunity among Christians, he says, Where do these wars and battles between yourselves first start? Isn't it precisely in the desires fighting inside your own selves? You want something, and you haven't got it, so you are prepared to kill. You have an ambition that you cannot satisfy, so you fight to get your way by force. Why you don't have what you want is because you don't pray for it. And when you do pray and don't get it, it is because you have not prayed properly. You have prayed for something to indulge your own desires. Now, there's a great teaching. People say that God doesn't answer their prayers. But James is telling us here, why you don't have what you want is because you don't pray for it. When you do pray and don't get it, it is because you have not prayed properly. You have prayed for something to indulge your own desires. So there's a message here that you could, there can be such a thing as improper prayer. Let's take a look here. At one stage, Jesus is talking and he says, Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. What father among you, if his son were to ask for a fish, would you hand him a snake? If your son were to ask for a loaf of bread, would you hand him a stone? If your son were to ask for an egg, would you hand him a scorpion? If you, with all your faults, know how to give good things to your children, how much more so will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it? So the first rule then, when it comes to prayer and asking, is we must, must ask for what is right, for what is good, for what is holy. If you remember in uh, the Hebrew scriptures when God appeared to Solomon and he said to him, ask of me what you will, Solomon said to God, give your servant an understanding heart that I may know right from wrong. 
And the very next line in the scripture says, It pleased Almighty God that Solomon should have asked for an understanding heart. So our prayers must please God. And he said to Solomon, Because you asked for an understanding heart, and not for the life of your enemies or power or money or whatever, but have asked for an understanding heart, I give you a heart so shrewd and so wise that none before you has had and none after you will have. And Paul then in Corinthians uh, says, at the end of chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 13, he says, in your prayers, be ambitious for the higher gifts. So you have to ask for the higher gifts, like love and the ability to have compassion, to preach, to have wisdom, uh, to teach others, to build people up. At one stage, uh, Jesus was talking and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if anybody then turns around and says to God, make me rich, well, you're offending God by that type of prayer because you're saying to God, make it difficult for me to get into heaven. You see, the rich are inclined to rely on their own wealth. There's a wonderful passage uh, in one of the Gospels that has left a deep impression on me. Uh, one day Jesus is walking along and with a crowd of people, and by the road there's a blind man. He's been blind from birth, and uh, he's also a beggar man. So day after day he cries out, Arms of the poor! Arms of the poor! Arms of the poor! And he's completely blind, this individual. Now, like a lot of blind people, his hearing is more intense. And one day he gets a different feel about the crowd. And he says to somebody who is near him, What's happening? What's happening? And somebody says to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, this is very interesting. By telling him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, that's no different than saying, like, Patrick Joseph, which is my name, Patrick Joseph from Ocala is passing by. But the blind man gets all excited, and he shouts out at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Now, what's astounding by this passage, about this passage is, when the Messiah would come, he would be the son of David. How come the only one who knows who Jesus is in the crowd is the blind man? I mean, the man can't even see. And yet he calls Jesus the son of David. Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. And he called out so loudly, he made a nuisance of himself. And the people, if you like, turned on him and said, Shut up, Bartimaeus, shut up, don't be embarrassing the great man. But Bartimaeus persisted in his, in his crying out, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Now, because of his persistence, he was heard. And Jesus said, bring him to me. Now, the same crowd who told uh, Bartimaeus to shut up, now they jump on the bandwagon. Have you noticed that? That when you're down, you're down by yourself. When you're on the way up, you've got a lot of friends. So they said to Bartimaeus, oh, Bartimaeus, he is calling you. Bartimaeus jumped up, threw off his cloak, the only security he had in life. Because, remember, he's a poor man and a beggar man, and he sleeps in his cloak. 
It keeps him warm. So he throws it off and goes right up to Jesus. And Jesus then appears to ask him an incredibly stupid question. He says to him, what do you want of me? And Bartimaeus says, that I may see. And Jesus touched his eyes. And the first thing that Bartimaeus ever saw was the eyes of his Lord and Master. And then he followed him up the road. Now, how about you? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's always passing by. He has been let loose on the world. I have a little story here called uh, He Passed By, and let me just uh, read it to you. He Passed By. The story of Jesus can be summarized in just three words. He passed by. He passed by. And what a dynamic passing it was. He passed a blind man, and the man began to see. He passed by a paralytic, and the paralytic got up and walked. He passed by a woman of easy virtue, and the woman became a saint. He passed by me, and I cannot tell you the difference that passing that passing has made in my life. Are you passing through life in the same way Jesus did, doing good on all sides, making people and places better for your having been there? When your story is being told, will people be able to say of you as they did of Jesus, even if in a smaller way that you passed by? Now, what I want to say to you, and I know it takes a great deal of faith, is Jesus of Nazareth is always present. He's present in the house of every unbeliever. He's present within every unbeliever. He's present within every person in the world whether they know it or not. And he's saying to you what he's saying to me and what he's saying to everybody, what do you want of me? Now, I know this is a dangerous kind of a question because with it goes the warning that be ambitious for the higher gifts. Make sure you ask for what is right, for what is holy. And if you ask in a persistent manner, then as surely as the day follows the night, uh, it will be given to you. Now, what do I mean by a persistent manner? In a certain town, there was an unjust judge who feared neither God nor man. And in the same town, there was a widow woman. And this widow woman, day after day, beat at the judge's door, demanding justice. And that finally, the judge says to himself, he said, I fear neither God nor man, but this widow woman is driving me crazy. I will give her what she wants. And so he gave her justice. Well, now, look what the unjust judge said. Because of the persistence of the widow woman, um, she got what she wanted. Well, it's the same with us. If we pray to God in a persistent manner, then what we ask for will be given to us as surely as the day follows the night. The presumption, of course, is that you are always asking for what is right and good and holy. Starting today, if you humbly ask God every day for the gift of an understanding heart, the gift of wisdom, as surely as the day follows the night, God will give you this wisdom. And like Solomon of old, you will be wise. You will know how to live your daily life pleasing in his sight. My name is Patrick J. O'Doherty. Shalom.